the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. I like that song. I like those words. There's some talk and some debate in uh, Christian circles and preacher circles about this song. I don't keep up with the world on social media. I live in reality, so I try to stay out of some of these arguments. But uh, I, I think I need to settle just a little bit of concern. Maybe it's not in your hearts, but it's some concern in other people's hearts and minds. Over the idea of, of God being reckless. When we hear that word reckless, and it's kind of disturbing, isn't it? And really, if, if you think about it, God is not reckless. But this song doesn't say that God is reckless. I need you to get that. It doesn't say that God is a reckless God. It describes the love of God as overwhelming and never-ending and reckless. In fact, if you look up the word reckless in the English dictionary, you'll find two definitions. One is to do something without caution or care. That's not God. He cares, and He knows what He's doing. The second definition is this. To do something without consideration for oneself. That is God. And that is Jesus. In fact, Jesus knew what was going to transpire when he started teaching and preaching the truth. People weren't going to like it. People were going to get upset. People wanted to be quiet. They arrested him, and eventually they even killed him for what he did and what he said. Jesus gave no thought for his own life. Rather, he cared about the lives of all of the others around him. This is the sense in which we sing about the overwhelming, never-ending, and reckless love of God that Jesus Christ did what he did and said what he said, taught what he taught without consideration for what would happen to him. He came to seek and to save the lost. I'm thankful for that, aren't you? And that's why I sing about the overwhelming, never-ending and reckless love of God. In fact, I want to preach to you this morning about the healing of the paralytic from Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. I think in this passage we see overwhelming love demonstrated. Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. The healing of the paralytic. Some of you will be familiar with this story because you had it in your Sunday school lesson a couple of weeks ago. That's okay. We're going to look at it again from a different perspective. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These Gospel accounts point to the same Jesus, the same message, but they're told from a slightly different angle. If you had four different witnesses that came to the stand and swore to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, and when they came to the stand they actually told the truth, they might not use the exact same verbiage from the stand. But if they were all telling the truth, they're telling it from their own perspective and vantage point. This is what the gospel writers do. So we have the same story in Mark 
and in Luke about the healing of the paralytic, but from a little bit of a different angle. Luke chapter 5, verse 17. One day he was teaching, that's Jesus, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on, and he went home glorifying God. They were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God and they were filled with fear saying we've seen remarkable things today Jesus healed this man this man's friends loved him enough to bring him to Jesus so that he could experience healing but while they brought him to Jesus so that he could be physical, physically healed, he also experienced spiritual forgiveness. Really, salvation manifested personally to his own heart and his own life. And we read stories like this and we think, Yay, Jesus saves! He's powerful! He's awesome! But then we live throughout the rest of the week forgetting about the story, thinking it's ancient past or it doesn't happen anymore. But we still, deep in our hearts, like to hold on to the idea that Jesus saves, that He has power and authority to bring salvation to human hearts. It's easy to get caught up in the idea of the story of Jesus, the talk of missions, mission offerings, church programs and activities without realizing or remembering our personal role in the mission of God in this world. For example, there are a lot of people who love sports, right? If you guys didn't know, the Cardinals' first game is Thursday this week. But even as much as I love the St. Louis Cardinals and, and love baseball, I'm not going to play. 
I mean, let's just face it, at this point, they'd be crazy to call me to go up to St. Louis and try to stand in a batter's box. They would be. And as much as I love baseball, I'd probably decline that offer. People who love sports most of the time sit on the sidelines and they pull for their favorite team, but they never step foot on the playing field to make a contribution to the game themselves. They're like cheerleaders. They're not actual contributors. And sadly, the same thing can be said oftentimes of members of the local church as well. I'm not going to ask you to go through this exercise, but I'll give you an example. Pastor was preaching a message on the importance of evangelism. That is sharing your faith with others. Sharing the story of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins and rising again. Talking to people about repenting of their sins and believing in Christ. But to begin his message, he didn't talk about witnessing. He asked three questions. He said, uh, folks, I've realized that in our church we talk about Jesus and we're fans of Jesus. But we don't really know him like we ought to in a personal sense. And we don't really engage on the mission for which he sent us in a personal way. He said, so I'm going to ask you a few questions. He said, if, if you spent some time with the Lord this morning in prayer, asking him to speak to your heart and worship, or maybe even bring requests and needs before him, would you just slip your hand up so we can know if you're actually talking to the Savior? That you claim to worship this morning. So being a good Baptist church. Several of the members of the congregation. Raised their hand. Good. He said you can put your hands down. And he said. Now I want to move from you talking to God. To you listening to God. And what he has to say to you. So before you came to church this morning. How many of you decided to spend some time. With the Lord and his word. The Sunday school teachers. Reviewing their lesson. You know, that's good. I know that you guys will raise your hands, but how many others of you actually took the time to listen and hear from God? What do you want you to do today and what he wants to say to you? Not as many members lifted up their hands and raised them at that point. He said, all right, thank you. You can put your hands down. Then he asked him the third question. This is where he got to evangelism. He said, I want to ask you a question. How many of you this week invited someone to come to church with you? Or even if you, you didn't do that, maybe you just prayed for someone who was lost to be saved and to come to know Jesus Christ as the Lord of their life. He had a handful slip up their hands. In a congregation of 200. And they put them down. It's sad. Really I've come to believe. In some ways that the Baptist church. Has more nuns than the Catholic church. And here's what I mean by this. If Baptist preachers. Were to ask their church members. How many of you have ever. Shared your faith in Jesus. With someone. Very few people would raise their hand. 
In fact, if the pastor rephrased the question in a negative sense, how many of you have never witnessed to a soul in your lives? Not even one. None. The majority of people would have to lift their hands in shame. We have people who aren't willing to share their faith with others. And I get it. I've even talked to several of you before about why this is in, in our church and really not even just at First Baptist Church in Walnut Ridge, but across the Southern Baptist Convention and, and other churches in general. There's all kinds of responses, reasons, <clears throat> excuses. Let's just call them what they are. I'm too scared. Okay. I don't feel like I know enough. Okay. Jake, I, I feel like I, I've got to develop a relationship with people before I can really get into that depth of subject material with them. Okay. Well, Jake, you don't understand the people that I'm with all the time. They're, they're never going to listen to me if I try to even talk to them. Okay. Well, Jake, I don't, I don't really want to push my faith on others. I, just, I think I ought to live as an example before them and if they see me and the way I act and they hear me and the way I talk, just in a general sense, then I won't ever have to really tell them about Jesus. They'll just kind of get it. Okay. You guys have heard of that real fancy Greek word, hadn't you? Baloney. That's what all of those things are. Every single one of those things are excuses. And now look, I'm not saying that we just push those things away and act like they're no big deal because for some of us, those are the reasons why we don't share our faith. So let's just think through this. If you're scared, why not pray and ask the Holy Spirit for courage and boldness? I mean, this is the same Holy Spirit who lives in us, the same Holy Spirit who lived in the apostles when, they, when the jail shook and the prison doors flew open. This is the same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus to preach His message of salvation to the world. Why don't we just ask for the courage that we need? If we don't know enough, then maybe we need to spend some time studying the Word. Maybe you even just need to flip open to the front cover of your Sunday school book where every quarter there is a way to share the gospel message. Did you know that? Maybe instead of Talking about how we don't know people well enough. Maybe we should walk across the street and invite that neighbor that we can't remember their name, even though we've lived right next to him for eight years. Maybe we should just say, hey, we're grilling burgers Friday night. You want to come over, hang out with us? We'd love to have you to our house. Maybe instead of thinking that you're pushing your faith on somebody else, come to realize that the most important thing you can talk with about anybody is eternal life in Christ. I mean, I would dare say, if they come to realize even just a little bit of what you're talking about, they would be far more upset with you if you didn't talk to them about coming to faith in Christ than if you did. This story, the healing of the paralytic, I think we find a Remarkable group of people, some men carrying a buddy on a pallet. A stretcher is the word that Luke uses. 
the fancy word in Greek that was often used to talk about people with a medical condition, even sometimes those who were hurt and needed a stretcher, people to carry them to safety or to go see a doctor. These men expressed faith in Jesus Christ that he could heal their friend, mend him, and make him better. I want you to notice a few things in this story as it relates to sharing our faith. How these men bringing their friend before Jesus is how we ought to act, how we ought to behave as Christians, sharing our faith with others and bringing people to Jesus. First, these men had a mission. They knew what they were doing. In fact, a mission is what drives us, doesn't it? It drives us as individuals, and it also drives our culture. So, I want to ask you this question. Do you have a mission? A mission in life? Do you have a mission as you walk with Christ? Some of you have a mission statement at the place where you work. Some of you have a mission statement, maybe, for even what you want to do with your job and profession. Do you have a mission statement for your personal life, your walk with Christ? We develop mission statements for our companies to help keep the company on course and on track, moving in the right direction, doing the right things. But when we get off course from the mission statement, all of a sudden, we're not doing what our company created us to do. A mission statement defines the basics and essentials. For example, you guys are familiar with FedEx, right? I like that one of their early slogans, the world on time. You get packages to people in a prompt manner. That was their job. That was their duty. So everything that was going on in the company of FedEx was related to that mission. It went to further that mission. Some of you may be familiar with a little social media platform called Instagram. Anybody know their mission statement? Here it is. I'll give it to you. To capture and share the world's moments. Pretty good, isn't it? That's what it's all about for Instagram. To capture and share the world's moments. Our church has a mission statement. Do you know that? On the front of your bulletin, you'll see it. It's to reach people and make disciples. But what about you? What's your mission in life? I mean, these guys knew that they wanted to bring their friend to Jesus. They wanted their friend to be healed, so they brought him to Jesus. They wanted their friend to be healed, so they picked him up on his bed and carried him to Jesus. They wanted their friend to be healed, so they dug a hole in the roof and lowered him down to Jesus. Everything that they did was centered around that mission, that driving force. Here's my thought. If the vast majority of Christians are not sharing their faith with other people, Maybe it's because they don't have a Christian mission, or maybe it's because they have the wrong mission in life. Is fair enough? Or maybe it's that we have the right mission, but we get sidetracked with all this other hoopla that we think is more important than the gospel message of Jesus Christ. But it's not. 
Nothing is more important than people coming to saving faith in Christ. Maybe there is. What, what do you guys think? Is there anything more important? Go ahead. If you've got it, share it with me. Is there anything more important than people coming to faith in Christ? Anything. Because if there's not, our mission should be about reaching people and making disciples, right? Jesus himself had a mission statement. In fact, later on in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 19, he said it in this way. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. This is what Jesus was all about. So I want to challenge you to do something this week. Maybe even right here and right now, if you've got a pen and a piece of paper, or you want to take out one of the pencils on the pew rack and write it down on the back of your bulletin. What is your mission? Write it down. And I'll give you a real good hint. Whatever you write down as your personal mission in life ought to be the same thing as your master, Jesus Christ. If his was to seek and to save the lost, your mission ought to flow out of that, line up with it. And I think that when we get the idea in our minds and our hearts that there is nothing more important than people coming to saving faith in Christ, all of a sudden we begin to reorient and reorganize our lives to fit into God's eternal plan and purpose. And we begin to realize, God, what I've been spending my money on is not near as important as this. God, what I've been spending my time doing is not nearly important as this. God, what I've been living for is not nearly important as this. What is your mission? If you already have a mission, are you fulfilling your mission? If you already have a mission, do you have the right mission? What is your mission? These men had one. It was to bring their friend to Jesus. Two, these men didn't just have a mission. They also had an eager expectation. Mission was to heal their friend. And so they had this eager expectation that if they brought their friend to Jesus, what would Jesus do for their friend? What did they want Jesus to do for their friend? What did they expect Jesus to do for him? They heal him. That's what they expected. They expected this guy who had been unable to walk to use his legs, to move around freely. They actually believed that Jesus could heal this man. They thought maybe, just maybe. They took a risk because of the mission. They wanted to heal their friend. If Jesus could heal him, it was worth carrying him through the crowd. It was worth digging a hole in somebody's roof. This is true of men and women throughout the Bible who did what God asked them to do, what God called them to do. When they had the mission, they expected God to do something as they lived in obedience to the mission He'd given them. You think about Joshua, the leader of the Israelite nation. Going into the promised land, the land of Canaan, the first place that they come to, God doesn't say, get your best soldiers out and line them up and go on a huge offensive attack against the city of Jericho. No. God told those guys, hey, just march around the walls of the city seven days. In fact, on the seventh day, march around it seven times, I'll take care of everything. What do you think was going through 
the minds of these Israelites as they're marching around that city the seventh time on the seventh day. They blow those trumpets and scream and shout in the name of the Lord. You think they were expecting nothing to happen? I think they were expecting the walls to fall down. What about the man Elijah, God's prophet, the one who was faithful to him, going up on Mount Carmel for a contest between the false god Baal and the one true God, the Lord. Elijah dared the prophets of Baal. Hey, you guys make your altar to Baal, the god of thunder and lightning, the god of storms. You ask Baal to send fire down from heaven to burn the altar that you've built and consume the sacrifice you put on that altar. And if Baal does it, I'll concede. He's God and he has power. But if he doesn't, let me just show you what my God can do. In fact, Elijah built his altar and then he got people to fill a trench up that he dug around it with water. In fact, he saturated this thing with water so much that there was no way in the world you could put enough diesel fuel on it to light a fire. But here's what happened. Elijah knelt down and he prayed and he expected that God would send fire down from heaven to consume his altar and to sacrifice upon it. And as soon as that man's knees hit the floor and his prayers went up, lightning fell from heaven. The altar was consumed and the sacrifice on it and everybody saw that the Lord was God. What did Elijah and Joshua have in common with these men here in Luke chapter 5? They expected God to do something. Let me tell you why a lot of Christians don't share their faith. They don't expect God to save people. So, oh, Jake, I don't know about that. We believe Jesus can save people. We don't expect him to. You just this morning when you woke up, did you pray? in earnest expectation, an eager expectation that somebody would come forward at the end of our worship service here today who was lost in the crowd. Did you show up this morning thinking somebody's going to get saved today? God has the power to bring somebody to salvation. Or did you wake up out of bed this morning and roll into church going, man, I hope Jake doesn't preach long again this week. These men had an eager expectation. What's your expectation? What do you believe God's going to do when you actually identify one person in your life that you can be praying for, inviting to church, and sharing the gospel with? What do you think is going to happen? These men expected their friend to be healed. But guess what happened? The friend was healed. Here's the third thing about these men. They didn't just have a mission. They didn't just have eager expectation but they also encountered an obstacle. Look, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that sharing your faith with people is easy. In fact, my evangelism professor, Gray Allison, who went to be with the Lord a few weeks ago, he told us that he always got nervous sharing his faith with people. I have never seen a man who was more competent to share the message of Christ in, in personal conversation than Gray Allison. But he talked about nervousness, anxiousness. When we share Jesus with people, when we share the story of Jesus coming, dying for our sins and rising again, and how we can have life in his name if we repent of our sins, we're going to encounter obstacles. Because of the crowd, there was no way for these men to see Jesus. At this point, 
many would have given up. Well, sorry, buddy. I know we drug you all the way over here, but not today. It's not going to happen. We'll try to catch him later when he's not as busy, when there's not as many people around. But they didn't throw up the white flag of surrender. What did they do? Hey, there's some steps going up to the roof. Hey, make sure we don't drop him because we're going to have to angle him coming up the, the stairs. So they walk up to the roof. And there's another obstacle before them. The roof. That didn't stop him either. They dug a hole and lowered him down through the roof to lay him in front of Jesus. We assume that an open door is equal to the path of least resistance. But imagine for a moment if the Apostle Paul, the great missionary of the Christian faith, would have only walked through open doors. He walked through open doors. God gave him opportunity to minister. But what if he only shared the gospel when it looked like it would work from man's perspective? What if he only went on a mission trip when he thought, eh, the weather's going to be okay. I'm not going to have to worry about getting shipwrecked. Half of the New Testament would have never been written. Churches wouldn't have been planted. People wouldn't have come to saving faith in Christ. When these men saw an obstacle, their hope and their belief were so strong that they kicked open the closed door. Or I guess you could say they put a hole in the roof instead of going through a door. Look, when we share our faith with people, we're going to encounter obstacles. Some people are going to look at you with the face of disgust and repulsiveness that you hadn't seen for a long time. Since you had a teacher in grade school when you told her for the third time that week that the dog ate your homework. You know what I'm talking about? They're going to go, well, I don't want to hear that. You really going to stop? Because they give you a dirty look? Some people, when you're talking to them about faith in Christ, are going to have numerous questions about the Bible. You're going to give up? You're going to say, man, I don't know. I asked the preacher, but he didn't really have a great answer to that question either. I guess if he doesn't, I'm never going to be able to find one. So you might as well just go on ahead and live life without Jesus. Or you're going to spend some time studying the Word. Finding, seeking answers to their question, praying in faith that the Holy Spirit will give you understanding to address their specific question with grace and truth. When we encounter an obstacle, we don't stop, we keep going. It's, think for a moment. What if, when we encountered obstacles, we didn't just view them? as hindrances that kept the gospel from spreading, we viewed them as even greater opportunities where we knew that if God did a work here, His work would explode and spread so rapidly, so deeply, that not just one person, but tens and hundreds and thousands of people would come to know Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior. What obstacles... You encounter when you face others and you're sharing your faith with them. You will never encounter a greater obstacle than Jesus had. Now look, Jesus talked to people that didn't want to hear him. 
Jesus healed people that were incurable. Jesus also faced something called death on a cross. The most painful death, I believe, in the history of the world. He went through it. Jesus was also put in a tomb. He was dead. Do dead people breathe? Some of you aren't breathing this morning. Dead people breathe? No. Dead people talk? No. Dead people's heartbeat? No. Does their mind function? No. Can they move or do anything? No. What did Jesus do? He came out of the tomb. The youth praise band sings this song. I think it's hilarious to watch Nick do this. It's just funny. uh, It's a song about Jesus. They sing, uh, he called my name and I ran out of that grave. If you've ever seen Nick do the fist pump, it's really great. If Jesus came up out of his grave, a dead man came up out of his grave. Tell me, what obstacle in the world can you face that Jesus doesn't have the power to overcome? And he will. These men had a mission. They had an eager expectation. They encountered an obstacle, but they kept going. These men also got more than they bargained for. This is the fourth point in this story. These men got more than they bargained for. In fact, we really shouldn't settle for the mundane when Jesus wants to do the miraculous. His friends thought the primary need was external, right? So we bring our friend to Jesus. Jesus can make his legs work again. He gets up and walks out of the house. Boom. Win. What Jesus did in this passage is true for everyone. He shows us that the greatest need is an internal posture of a heart that needs to be changed. Not just of a body that needs to be healed. And when Jesus addressed the deeper need, the people were filled with awe. Pay attention to the order that this takes place. It's really the heart of the gospel. Did Jesus first say to the man, hey, get up, pick up your pallet, and start walking? Or did he first say, your sins are forgiven you? Which one did he say first? He said, your sins are forgiven you. Look, we're going to encounter people with all kinds of needs. Financial, emotional, physical. But the greatest need in every human heart is salvation from sin. The greatest need in every human heart is salvation from sin because that's the need that is eternal. You can't take your money with you. In fact, when you die and you go into eternity, you know Jesus, your body's going to be glorified and resurrected, so it doesn't matter what you look like at this point. Why would we care so much about the outside when God wants to do the deeper work on the inside? And there's going to be some things that, like Jesus did when he ministered to people, he helped folks who were poor, he helped folks who were hungry, he helped folks who were needy, he helped folks who were sick. We ought to do those things. But we do those things with the ultimate goal in mind of seeing them given eternal life, not just a better life here on earth. And these men got more than they bargained for that day when they brought their friend to Jesus. They just wanted him to get up and walk out of the house and be healed. But Jesus said, Your sins are forgiven. What happened? Those guys' jaws hit the floor. What? You mean this guy is now viewed as righteous in God's eyes? The Son of God has healed him, not just of physical infirmities, but has also given him new life. 
I would dare say that if, if we took Jesus' power and authority seriously and we really decided to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that Jesus has commanded because He's with us even to the end of the world. I think we really decided to take that command seriously and obey Jesus like the Lord that He is. I think we'd see Him do far more abundantly beyond anything we could ask, seek, or even imagine. So here's my question as I wrap this up this morning. Who's the one person on your mind right now? Who's the one person God's placed on your heart that like this paralytic man who came before Jesus was healed and forgiven of his sins, who's that one person that you need to bring before Jesus? I want you to identify one. Look, Jesus died for the sins of the world. But the world doesn't hear unless we share the news. So who's the one person you're praying for to come to faith in Christ? Who's the one person that you are going to invite to church? Maybe you've already invited them to come to church so that they can hear the good news from the pulpit or the Sunday school classroom or youth group on Wednesday nights or children's choir on Sunday nights. Who are you going to invite to church? Who are you going to share the gospel with? Say, Jake, man, that's, that's scary. I don't know if I can do that. The love of God really is overwhelming, never-ending, and reckless. In fact, as I was looking at some of this debate this week about the lyrics to that song, this thought came to mind, and I couldn't help it. But I think it's true. I think part of the reason why we don't want to describe the love that God has for us and showed to us the Son dying on the cross is that we really don't want to be overwhelming, never-ending, and reckless with the love of God as we show it and pass it on to others. We'd like to think, yeah, we want people to be saved. Yeah, we want people to come to church. Yeah, we want to see life change happen. But do we really want to invest the time, the energy, the effort personally seeing come, somebody come to faith in Christ? I think when we realize the love that God has for us in Jesus, we do. So I'm going to ask you this morning to identify your one person, if you haven't. Your one person that you can pray for, invite the church to share the gospel with. As you identify this one person, I want you to ask yourself, do I love them? Do I love them enough to pray for them every day? Do I love them enough to risk embarrassment or even rejection, inviting them to church and talking to them about faith in Christ? I think when you remember just how much Jesus loves you, you will. Because this is the wonderful thing about Christ's love. There's no shadow. He won't light up. There's no mountain, including Calvary. that He won't climb up. He's coming after me. He's coming after your one. There's no wall he won't kick down. There's no roof. He won't let somebody go through. We can't earn it. 
We can't deserve it. None of us have. He saved us anyways in spite of ourselves. Jesus' love leaves the 99 and goes after the one. Who is your one? Father God, we come to you this morning. Humbled by the love that you've shown us in your son Jesus Christ. Grateful and thankful for it and for him. God, I pray this morning that you would stir and move in our hearts so that we identify one person in our lives, in our circles of influence, that we can point to you, that we can pray for to be saved, that we can ask to come to church with us, that we can share our faith with so that they can be saved for eternity. God, would you help us remember the great love that you have for us? Would you spur us on to be about your kingdom and your mission to seek and to save the lost? As this song is played, I simply invite you to respond to however God has spoken to your heart this morning. Maybe you're the one that needs to repent of your sins and come to faith in Christ. I'll be standing down here in the front if you just need to come to me and say, Jake, I don't know God's love, but I want to. Maybe God's putting a person on your heart and you need to get up out of your pew and come and kneel at the steps of this altar, committing to the Lord to reach this one person for the sake of the kingdom. As God calls you this morning, would you come?